Dr. Kristen Oja here, entrepreneur and functional medicine expert. Welcome to Little By Podcast, where our goal is to empower you to achieve optimal health, one step and one episode at a time. Taking a functional medicine approach will cover a variety of health and wellness topics, from how to optimize performance to how to balance your hormones and everything in between. This podcast is for educational purposes only, so please be sure to consult your healthcare provider before incorporating any changes into your daily routine. Now grab your headphones and let's go for a walk as we take steps towards becoming your best self. I'm so excited to introduce our guest today, Kendall Flo. He is a clinical director at Hidden River Counseling, where he leads a team of therapists specializing in a collaborative, trauma-informed approach to healing marriages and families impacted by sexual addiction and a fair recovery. He works with individuals, families, and groups who long to live a full life free from the shackles that have haunted them throughout their lives. Kendall holds his master's in professional counseling from Denver Seminary. He is also trained in EMDR and emotional emotion-focused therapy, or EFT. In addition to sexual addiction and affair recovery, Kindle specializes in marriage counseling, couples therapy, marital restoration, anger management, porn addiction, and men's issues. And as always, we never want to be identified by our work, so Kindle also enjoys fishing, hiking, snowboarding, and playing softball as often as possible. He loves a good campfire and holds his family and friends very close to the fabric of his heart. So, Kendall, we are so excited to have you on the Little Buy podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Kristen. I'm happy to be here. And we actually, before I hit record, started getting into the Enneagram, and um, we both share a love for the Enneagram. Absolutely. I uh, can't get enough of it, both personally and professionally. I think it's fantastic. Well, one of the things, and I was telling you this before we recorded, is I really think the Enneagram helped my marriage drastically because I'm a seven and my husband's a six. So Mm -hmm. I'm an enthusiast. He's a loyalist. I see opportunity in everything. He sees risks in everything. And so I'd come Mm -hmm. to him, you know, as this entrepreneur with all these new ideas and he would just, you know, I would say pop it. He would pop all my ideas, my little bubbles. (laughs) And when Uh he, when he did the Enneagram, his ninth one was enthusiast. So out of nine personalities, (laughs) it's his very last one. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's, uh, you guys balance each other out, but I'm sh- I, I can imagine uh, getting those bubbles popped doesn't feel good too often. So do you use Enneagram in your practice? I do all the time, it is, uh, especially within the context of marriage counseling. I use it with every couple that comes in because I think um, uh, the two pieces, I think, as I was saying before we started recording, it's, a, it's an empathy-producing machine. Uh, and it also, in addition... Uh, it really uh, gives us a map to accurately and effectively be kind to ourselves as we more uh, put some language around uh, why we are the way we are. We stop feeling so alone in the way we think and the way we see the world. It, it, I use it all the time. It's been really, really helpful um, in my life for sure, in my marriage, but uh, as well as in uh, all the couples that I see. <clears throat> so do you send them the test prior to your first meeting to complete? I don't because um, I want to um, I, I want to make a personal connection first before I do that. I send them away with that with a kind of a this is why we do that kind of thing of what I just said to kind of prep their expectations for why we're doing this. But it's uh, but every couple that I've ever sent it to that's engaged it 
uh, has just raved about uh, how many uh, doorways to deeper intimacy uh, that it's open. I have some theories because I've had all my family do it, all my friends, all mm-hmm. my colleagues. I, I'm, I've just become obsessed with Enneagram and I understand mm-hmm. people so much better. But I have a theory of like certain marriages that do really well when you combine their numbers versus some that are going to have more struggles. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I would love, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've realized is reformers, number ones, they seem mm-hmm. to do best with helpers and peacemakers. Do they you do. S- do you see that true? Yeah, I see a lot of uh, 9-1 combinations <clears throat> for sure. And uh, I think they do uh, play off each other really well. Uh, and it's, it's reformers are, are you know, often referred to as the loneliest number uh, on the Enneagram because of the way they see the world in black and white. And I think peacemakers especially, and uh, as well as the, the, the helpers, uh, tend to uh, pull them into a place of uh, of belonging and engaging their own their own needs as opposed to, as as, to, as opposed to trying to fix the rest of the world. They can actually learn to be kind to themselves by being around people like nines and twos. Yes, I know. It's it's just it's so fascinating. So I'm glad that you like the enneagram too. But that was such mm-hmm. a side note that we were just talking about. Um, outside of kind of our conversation, but also yeah. very re- related. Um, mm-hmm. Because so Kendall, you you really specialize in these high crisis marriages. And right. we are just entering into 2021. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. Have you seen an influx of marital issues with the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been <clears throat> over the past year, for sure, I've seen more couples uh, in crisis and distress than I have in my uh, any other season for sure in my career. Um, I think, um, uh, you know, Kristen marriage, uh, is hard, uh, is really hard. And you add the trifecta of what was 2020 into that, and you're going to experience a lot of turmoil. Uh, as I, as I do a lot of reflection writing on it, I, I, um, there's two different kind of groups of people uh, in terms of marriages that I've observed. The first is, is they, the people who've, who've done the work uh, on their marriage um, prior to the pandemic uh, to create some safe space in their, in their marriage. When, they, when the rest of the world was cut off from them, <clears throat> they turned around and they found uh, a solace in their marriage, in the family. Uh, and those who had the other side of, uh, they had unknowingly neglected or distracted themselves from turning inward uh, or from dealing with their marriage or working on their marriage, when they turned in where they found fear and anxiety, blame and addiction, right? And so uh, without a doubt, it has been uh, ex- uh, an, an incredible thing to watch people who haven't done the work um, uh, on their marriage. There was, no, there was no place to run. All they were faced, all, all they were left with was this, uh, in a, oftentimes a marriage that had been neglected and 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 uh, put on the back burner for so long and the pandemic forced the issue and i think about all the people that go into the office you mm-hmm. know they're able to kind of run to work and distract mm-hmm. themselves with their nine to five job that maybe turns into like a nine to eight job and now all of a sudden they're working from home with their spouse 24 oh, seven mm-hmm. you know they're both in the same house so i mm-hmm. i can imagine um that you're seeing an influx are you working with patients virtually now with the pandemic or do you still see people in office 
You know, I do. I still, all of us here still do both. We're, we're equipped for a while. We were doing all online work. Um, uh, however, you know, we found it's really, we push to take as many precautions as we can to keep people coming in that are feel that are, that are taking the precautions and, and being, and they're healthy uh, because it's just so incredibly important to, to have presence uh, in the room uh, as much as, uh, Zoom is a wonderful tool. Uh, it does, without a doubt, limit um, uh, the ability. I, I think there's a healing uh, proponent of uh, that that presence provides, uh, and it really is uh, difficult to establish that kind of power in your presence uh, over on a screen. And so we we are pushing, or we're making it available. We're not pushing, but we're we've kept our doors open throughout the whole thing. We just continue to take the precautions we. We need to keep people safe. Well, it's such an essential job that you do, especially in this pandemic. I mean, mental health is Mm -hmm. it's such a huge area always. And then you add this Mm -hmm. pandemic on top of it. And so definitely what you're doing is essential work. And I know for me, when I meet one on one with my patients in person, you can really feel a lot more with energy and even body language and things that you just can't Mm -hmm. get virtually. Without a doubt. Uh, I think it's very important. So you mentioned those two type couples that you see um, through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And what are some variables that uh, kind of influence which group that they go in? Is it consistently pouring into each other and getting these date nights? Or what were some of the variables that help identify which group these couples were falling into, if any? Yeah, I I think, um, you know, I I think the people who engage the work of marriage prior to a crisis um, uh, as opposed to engaging it uh, in the midst of something blowing up. If you deal with, if you treat your marriage um, with the respect it it needs and then you need to protect it and engage it. Not only when, of course, when, you know, when you get a, when something blows up in your lap or somebody in your life gets sick or a kid's sick or you're, you know, you, you know, somebody, you find out about an affair, of course, you're, you know, those are the times most people get in to do some work. But uh, the, if we, I think what differentiates is that when people see their marriage, when they're just not getting along or things aren't going well, or things are just a little disconnected, they put the time investment and investment into their marriage. Uh, then, then when a crisis comes up, such as 2020, uh, they're going to be far uh, more equipped uh, to deal with it in a way that's connective as opposed to uh, repulsive away from each other. Right. And so I, I really think that's a huge piece. People who had neglected their marriage uh, unintentionally, uh, unknowingly, just because life goes on and you have kids, and you have jobs and things get in the way. It's the easiest thing to put on the back burner, but the people who put their relationship on the back burner, the pandemic put them in a space where it was high, high crisis and relationships started to crumble. Mm-hmm. Well, I know, I think with all relationships, you have to be super intentional. But I think with marriages, it's even more important to be intentional. And then you add work and kids. And I know that's one thing, everybody, we have a three month old at home, but everybody warned us, you know, mm-hmm. make sure you still have date nights, make sure that you still put your spouse first before your kids, because, you know, they're going to leave for college one day. And so I think that intention right. is huge. Yeah, I mean, I always tell I always tell people the most important most influential reality uh, of your child's life will be your relationship with your spouse. And so it's counterintuitive to put your energy and effort into things other than the most influential 
facet of their your children's lives, right? Uh, and so it's it's essential that you make uh, that that you it, you set up real structure around that, around making time for each other. Yes, I think that's so important. And one of the things is with what you do, you work with a lot of marriages. And when you look at some of the statistics, like we know in America that we have some of the highest uh, divorce rates, I think we're at 50%, Mm -hmm. like one in two marriages actually ends up ending in divorce. And that's even some of the statistics outside of the pandemic. And I know, of course, that you work with couples, have you found any data or research to support uh, going to counseling and going to therapy and the divorce rate outcomes? Yeah, I mean, there's there's tons of research and, and data out there. You know, I've, I've read, uh, you know, at this point, depending on the modality of couples therapy, 70% of, of couples report um, a positive impact of seeking counseling in their marriage. And, but, you know, I, I think uh, a lot of these... Um, these statistics get skewed a little bit um, kind of what I was talking about before, because people only come to, you know, the vast majority of people, it's getting less and less, which is really encouraging. The vast majority of people that come into my office are, are at their wits end with their marriage. Uh, it's a last resort. It's a, well, I guess since we're talking about divorce, we, we better get into counseling, right? It's like, well, you guys are way, way behind the space because sometimes it's too far gone sometimes the distance is so vast and the pain is so deep and the trauma in the marriage has been so neglected that to come back from that at that stage is is so incredibly difficult but i i think being proactive versus reactive is what i you know really kind of advocate for because rarely do people come see me that have just been through a stressful time or I've had a, 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 a tough season of feeling separate from each other and they've come into work on this. And I, I, when you think about those, those 50% uh, statistics, um, that's a, that's a crazy stat because there's not a lot of things in my life. I care a lot about that. I'd flip a coin for, um, uh, but it seems like we're people. It's one of my big advocacies is getting people to pull the trigger on getting help before, before things uh, get dark and and dire. Mm-hmm. And we take a very proactive approach at Stat Wellness really for our health. And I think relationships, mm-hmm. it's so important to be proactive. Do you recommend that couples just have a therapist even when they feel like things are going well? Or what are some signs that couples should do counseling before you know they're at that kind of end point that you mentioned? Yeah, I... I think we should all, I've got my own therapist and uh, we, I think we all should have a kind of a therapist on retainer, if you will, for our marriages, because as I said before, it's, this is really difficult for two imperfect, predominantly selfish human beings trying to learn to love each other. It's going to cause issues. I often joke with people uh, about how uh, marriage is one thing in the human, human experience where everybody gets theirs. Everybody gets their share of, junk and pain right and so i think it's it's uh when you start um the first piece is when you just you start experiencing a sense of loneliness and you start experiencing a you know you're feeling missed by your spouse feeling uh misunderstood you're not engaging in a way that you know 
one of one of my favorite things I talk about is you know, when I ask people, what does it look like for you guys to linger together? Right? That's a really interesting concept to linger. I really believe that whatever, no matter what relationship we're talking about, whether we're talking on a spiritual sense, a marital sense, a parental sense, that deepening of intimacy and relationship is always done within the context of lingering, meaning you're not trying to accomplish anything. You're not trying to check a box. You're just enjoying that person. And you, that's enough. And if you're, if you're incapable of lingering with each other, that's a sign that, that you're drifting, that something's, that something's got needs, needs some correction and some attention. That's uh, a, from, from, from where I sit. I'm sitting here even just thinking about myself because I always, outside of my marriage, I'm such a checklist. Like I'm always doing and mm-hmm. always accomplishing and always, it, it, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to even linger with myself. Um, oh, tell me about it. I'm a three on the Enneagram. So I, I, uh, I'm right there with you. The achiever. It's very difficult for me not to just check boxes left and right. And it's really easy to treat my marriage that way. Has there been any tools that you've done in your own marriage or that you've worked with clients to kind of help them in that lingering period? Because I think that is, that's a very important concept. Yeah, I mean, it's what, what lingering requires is you to have a, uh, a sense of um, peace in your own soul and, and learn to be able to sit at rest and at peace. One of the things I push high driven people who are check big checklisting people is to uh, do things like uh, sit in silence for 10 minutes before you start your day, not sleeping, but sit in silence and attempting to do nothing. Just be as you are and be okay with it. Because if I can't be as I am with who I am and be okay with it, I can't sit with my wife and be okay with who she is as she is. Yes. And I feel like that's so important, kind of working on ourselves even before mm-hmm. we can work on our marriage. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in tandem, mm-hmm. in tandem, you got it. You can't, it's, it's too, too, a healthy marriage is two people choosing to be the healthiest version of themselves, uh, deciding to connect with each other, right? That's, it's not, you don't get healthy because your hair, your marriage gets healthy. Your marriage gets healthy because two people choose to get healthy. I love that you said choose. Cause I told my husband, I was like, you know, we, it's really cool that we have the choice on what kind of life and marriage we want. Like it is mm-hmm. ultimately a, a choice and a decision. Are we going to work to grow together or are we going to be okay with not growing together? And it seems like such a mm-hmm. choice that you both have to be very intentional about on a cool. daily basis. Without a doubt. Yeah. You, you, we, uh, good marriages do not just happen or evolve. Uh, they, they are a, a long string of very, intentional, empathetic, driven decisions uh, to, to kind of what you talk about in terms of becoming the best version of yourself. Like, what's the best version of my future marriage? And how do I move in that direction uh, on purpose? Yes, yes. And why are there some variables why you think that the US has such a high divorce rate compared to some of the other countries? Yeah, you know, I, that's an interesting thought. Um, my my best uh, hypothesis there is around uh, a mentality that's bent towards um, like an entitlement to the ideal, right? I think uh, there's a, uh, as Americans, uh, I think we live in the space of, uh, I want what I want and I want it now, right? It's a land of opportunity, it's white picket fence and, and we tend to um, become obsessed with what we believe 
that we, we, we must have in order to be happy, right? And when we live with an unrealistic ideal as our goal, and uh, it creates a tremendous propensity towards uh, a concept that I really talk a lot about, but it's comparison, right? Uh, and as I sign all my emails uh, with Theodore Roosevelt says, comparison is a thief of joy, right? And the longer I live comparing my life to the person next door who I believe has what I'm supposed to have or what I should have if I did the right thing or I should have if my wife did the right thing or the wrong, whatever, changed in a certain way, the more uh, joy I'm allowing to be sucked out of my own soul and the easier it is to begin to uh, fantasize about where I could find it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Do you think social media is playing a role on that? Oh my, it's, it's, it is, I mean, social media is driven, it's fuel is comparison, right? It it profiteers on comparison. It's the, you know, this, the way I like to think about it is uh, that people put the 1% of their life on social media and I compare my 100 to their 1% and it will never measure up. And so therefore, and I, I've in my own, my own personal life, uh, several years ago, I would, I'd be flipping through whether Facebook or Instagram or whatnot. And as I started to tap into my own experiential reality, uh, I'd be doing just fine. And I'd spend 10 minutes flipping through social media. And then I would, I'd check in with myself 10 minutes later. And I was like, I feel like crap. Like I feel angry and resentful and frustrated. And it's because without even knowing it, I'm plugging into a source that is taking joy from me uh, and leaving me with uh, resentment that I very quickly can just point at my wife and say, it's your fault. It's not careful. Right. Do you think that there's been any issues from a, a fair standpoint with social media and the connections with people from the past or things like that? Or, or is it more the comparison that you see? Yeah, sure. Of course there's, you know, if, the thing people talk about with why they stay on Facebook is I want to stay connected with the people who don't have my number and want to be able to contact me from college or from elementary school. And that's all well and good, but yes, of course, uh, that does create a, a potential for, you know, unhealthy engagement with, with uh, other people. But I think what's, and that's just, that's just a, 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 an outlet for this festering, uh, uh the effect of, uh, comparison, right? If I'm, if I've been sitting here, you know, for the past three years, slowly but surely being seduced into the fact that I, into the lie that my life isn't what it should be and my wife isn't what she should be. Uh, and then all of a sudden some woman from, you know, the from middle school reaches out and says, hey, I'm in a very vulnerable space there, right? To, to say, oh, this must be, and I'm, it's not, con- it wouldn't be conscious people. It's just this, I think we're slowly deceived into believing we deserve more and, and we feel this deep sense of joylessness that, something comes along and it's we we deceive ourselves into believing this is the secret to my happiness. This is what I've been waiting for. And and so it's really, uh, really common that that does happen. And I feel like one of the other things I would imagine just from even working with my patients is 
we're always now looking for the quick fix. You know, even when you mm-hmm. think about the fast food industry, you know, we we're looking for quick food. We're looking for a pill to take for weight loss. We're looking for yep. our thyroid to be off to help with our metabolism so we can take this medication. We're looking for these quick fixes. And then I feel like with all of the technology, we do get things quick. Like we can send an email and get a response mm-hmm. back from our, you know, everything has become so immediate. Mm-hmm. And like one of the things you've said from the beginning is like marriages are hard and you have to work at it. And do you feel like part of it too, is that the American culture doesn't necessarily encourage that long, like the, the small changes, the work that goes into these relationships to keep them together? Oh, yes. I think uh, the immediate gratification uh, lie that we can get what we want quickly uh, is, is a, uh, a drug that's poisoning us, poisoning us for sure. I, I, I think, uh, what really the things that are worth, I mean, the old saying, right. That what's worth having, uh, whatever's worth having is hard to get, right. It takes time. Everything that I believe that I have didn't, uh, that's of real substantial value. Wasn't just, didn't just appear. It, it came with hard work, whether it be building a business or a marriage or having healthy, you know, uh, <laughs> emotionally engaged children or, or all these things you can't, you know, the world wants to profiteer on one simple tip or one simple book or one simple thing. And it just doesn't work that way. You have to put the work in to get things like that, that really matter in this life, like a, a healthy marriage. And I know we talked about how you have to be really intentional. You have to put the work in, uh, not kind of fall into this ideal or comparison game. What are mm-hmm. some other denominators that you see in the marriages that struggle or, you know, if one of the spouse does have an affair, is there some other mm-hmm. variables that you've seen in your years of practice? Yes. Uh, the big piece, uh, as I kind of reflect over the years of watching couples, uh, you're studying the degradation or the, uh, the, the evolving demise of a marriage, one of the things that I see consistently at the heart of it is, is that resentment. <clears throat> I think that resentment is at the core of what creates distance between couples. And, and I have a, like a, a model. And if you, if you picture on, I'm a whiteboard guy, obviously a three, so I definitely use whiteboards. And, uh, the, uh, if you picture two horizontal lines across a, uh, a whiteboard, uh, representing them, the, each spouse and they're very close together. What happens is unfinished hurt, uh, enters the relationship and is, is neglected. Someone said something or did something and it was just, you know, distracted. We don't deal with it adequately. And I refer to that as unfinished hurt and unfinished hurt over time turns into resentment and resentment is the, is the agent. I believe that changes, uh, the the angle just slightly, uh, of the two lines representing the, the individuals like ships that are next to each other in the ocean that change one degree. And it's very, very subtle because if something happened in our marriage that have immediately we were miles apart, we'd do something about it. It would be too abrupt to, to let go. But this very subtle distancing takes place when resentment is at the core of it. And 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 the, the distance, the more distance we experience in marriage, the more uh, vulnerable we are to things like secrecy. The more distance we experience, the more vulnerable we are to, to things like, like I said, comparison and blame and contempt and defensiveness, all these really 
really unhealthy facets of marriage. And what, what I find is when people have been drifting for so long and they have all these really negative experiences with, with comparison and secrecy and that they get to a place where there's their, their ability to come back together is blocked. Right. And what I refer to as blocked intimacy and you live in a place of blocked intimacy for long enough, you, you believe your only option is to escape from that. Do you think these kind of hurt areas that people are putting into the center of that, are they able to identify that they're feeling that way? Or are these things that they're kind of just repressing that they're not intentionally recognizing? Because would your recommendation be to like really do internal work to identify these things to work through them at the time? I guess what I'm asking is like, how much of Mm -hmm. this is an intentional suppression versus people just don't have a clue that they're experiencing this hurt over time? Yeah, I think it's both. And a lot of it comes, comes, uh, we're informed how we deal with hurt through our childhood, right? And, uh, but I, the kind of metric I tell people is uh, when something happens in your marriage that hurts you, there that, that, that just stings, or, you know, it could be an expectation that wasn't fulfilled, or it could be a harsh word, or it could be a raised voice, or it could be, you have to ask yourself the question, is this something that's going to cause resentment in that moment? And if the answer is yes, or I don't know, then you need to bring it back up and readdress it. If the answer is no, then you choose to believe the best about the person and you let it go. And there really needs to be both buckets, right? We don't want to constantly be bringing up every single last piece. There needs to be a place in our heart where we can say, like if my wife's late for dinner tonight, uh, there needs to be a place in my heart that says, is this going to cause resentment? And I was like, no, she's really busy today and she loves me and it's okay. I can let that go. But then, you know, there could be another thing that happens that, again, this is really sticking to my ribs. And if I let this sit, and the lie we believe is it doesn't matter, it's not that big deal. It's it, kind of in a medicine, kind of the MD space. It's like it sticks to your ribs. And over time, when things stick to your ribs, uh, it causes issues, but subtly and slowly, not not immediately. Which makes it harder to recognize. It's the same exactly. way, you know, with weight gain, before you know it, your pants are too tight and... Yep. Maybe you mm-hmm. had no idea that you were gaining weight because um, it was yep. so gradual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I blew up and was 300 pounds tomorrow, I'd be like, okay, time to fix this, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Right, right. And you mentioned, you know, childhood. And that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because when I meet with my patients, I always go back to the beginning and I want to know their whole kind of timeline where your parents divorced? Was there any emotional trauma? Um, what was your upbringing like? Did you do family meals together? And that's always been something so important to me because I really think who you are is related to your past. But when you're meeting with your clients, whether it's the individual or the couple together, do you find that our upbringing really influences our perspective on our relationship? Do you see a big connection? Oh, oh without uh, a doubt, uh, Kristen, the, uh, it directly impacts our marriage. It's uh, our, our My wife always... You can imagine what it's like to be married to a therapist. There's a lot of uh, psychobabble, as she has referred to it, around family of origin. That must be, and and to be honest, as early in my marriage, I did use it quite frequently. Hey, that must be your family of origin. But uh, the uh, reality of the matter is, it, it does. It's uh, it is the foundational imprints of how we learn to get engaged in relationships, uh, how, how we learn to cope, how we learn to connect. Uh, ultimately, whether intimacy is safe or not was learned as a kid, not in our marriage. And if we grew up in an environment where intimacy wasn't safe, it's going to be really difficult for me to trust that my wife is safe. If we grew up in a household where 
emotions weren't recognized, it's going to be really difficult for me to let anyone, myself, my spouse, into those deep emotional and painful spaces. And I, I, I really think that uh, I think every married couple is asking the same question 10,000 different ways. Uh, I think we're asking, do I matter? Do I matter? And we, we unconsciously are going to take our cues and expect from our spouse the answer that we received when we asked that question as a child, whether overtly or covertly. And that's going to directly impact uh, my, my, what I learned to expect from my wife. And do you think there's anything in the kind of gender role? Like I've always heard, and I haven't gotten into research and I don't work with uh, clients the way you do, but that little girls, their relationship with their dad is really much more important than even the relationship they see between their mom and the dad versus, uh, you know, uh, little boys and their relationship with their mom and the way they learn to treat the opposite gender is, is that something that you see frequently or is it more just the family as a whole and their upbringing that is the most important? So you're talking about, uh, do, does the daughter's relationship with dad impact how she sees her husband? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Without, yes. Uh, I think, uh, this is well within the context of the, the imprint I was talking about, but specific to genders, you know, a, a woman who has a father who is emotionally neglectful, right? Is going to, um, is going to likely experience an expectation of that same thing. Or if, if, if you know, uh, a woman has a, an angry father, it's going to be, uh, there's going to be a trigger likely within the context of anything that feels like it could get to anger because of the damage that's done in the past. And the same with uh, boys and their moms. Uh, if you have a highly nurturing, you know, I've had, uh, I've had clients who, whose mothers were extremely, um, uh, they doted on their, their boys almost in an enmeshed space. And, and this is the imprint that they begin to expect. So they grow up and they get very frustrated when the laundry's not done and when the food's on the table when they get home. And, and, and it's because of the, the imprint that is, that's put uh, forth by their opposite sex parent. And do you think some of these can be identified in like premarital counseling Oh, sure. I think premarital counseling is fantastic. Uh, it's difficult to get past in premarital, the, the honeymoon phase of everything's fantastic. I love this person. I can't ever imagine being upset with this person that takes a few sessions to get to, but once you get, you know, I think some assessments are really helpful to begin to uh, pull out from under, um, <clears throat> the idealism, the, the expectations, uh, that's, uh, those are, um, whether, you know, how we look at money and how we look at, uh, sex and how we look at, you know, physical touch and, you know, these expectations, managing expectations is a huge piece of what it looks like to be married. And I think owning them is a big piece. If we can't recognize that these are imprints uh, from my childhood, then uh, the expectation just becomes something that, that, that is my wife's to fill as opposed to like, Hey, I know I have this, piece of me that expects this because this is the way my mom was. And I know that's not completely fair, right? That all of a sudden makes it a much safer space to engage. And if you can identify those before you get married, then you're ahead of the game. 
Yeah. And I, I can imagine that's tricky when everything is going so well to identify oh, um, man, yeah. <laughs> some of the pieces. I know we, my husband and I did premarital counseling and, uh, it was, a, it was funny immediately. They were like, Oh, you're the kite and he's the string. Like he's going to be very <laughs> grounding for you. Yeah, um, and good. I'm just over here flying all around. And so, um, <laughs> it, it made, and it you, made, and you, you gradually learn to know that you appreciate and need the string and that's good. Yes. Yes. Right. And it, I mean, it was amazing in just a couple of sessions that they were able to identify some of the kind of problem areas that we would get into, um, mm-hmm. just based on some personality traits that my husband and I both have. So I'm a huge, huge mm-hmm. proponent of premarital counseling. And one of the yeah. other things is I know you specialize in affair recovery and you also specialize in sexual addiction or sex addiction, um, which is something that I really have not explored. And I know that's one of your big specialties, And so I was just Mm -hmm. curious, even from the perspective of functional medicine, where, you know, we're always looking for the root cause, where do you think this comes from and how large of a problem is this in our culture? Oh, it's a, uh, it's a massive, uh, issue. It's becoming much more, might I say mainstream people are talking about it a lot more for different reasons, but it's pervasive. I, I think uh, we we are, uh, you know, if you look at the far extremes, people don't can't identify with them around, you know, the celebrities who've gone through this massive sex scandal and they're sex addicts and it, it's this big, they've destroyed their life through that. Yes, of course. I see people in that space for sure. But the vast majority of people I see have just simply... Uh, have just simply sexualized things that weren't intended to be sexualized. And uh, it's one thing I talk about a lot. It's a term that I'm kind of, I continue to develop is the sexualization of affirmation. And this within the context, and I see a ton of men, right? Uh, So I can't speak directly to to women in this space, but uh, sexualization of affirmation is uh, pervasive for, for men everywhere I look. Uh, because uh, at the core of the heart of men, we're asking something of the question, uh, do I have what it takes, right? Uh, Back to the do I matter piece. And, you know, the culture has taken sex and made it among the most uh, affirming uh, experiences. What I often say to men is there, there's nothing that feels quite like the gaze of another person, right? That it says without saying it, you are good, you matter, you are valuable. And from a from a male's perspective who has grown up in a space where those questions were answered uh, in a much different and negative or derogatory way, uh, that can quickly become a, a drug that we can't get enough of because what we're longing for, I believe, is, within the context of sexual brokenness is is to be seen, known, and loved. We long for intimacy. And the chemicals that are released in your brain within the context of, of uh, sexuality, orgasm, is, are, they mimic real intimacy. And so for a second, uh, we get to, it, it produces this feeling that sex is supposed to, of belonging and safety and, and closeness that we're dying for. And, and you think about porn and you think about the accessibility of sex these days, it is, uh, everywhere. Is the hormone that you're talking about, or are you talking about oxytocin? 
Yes. Okay. Because oxytocin is something that uh, I actually use a lot in, in my practice as well, even as a more of a bioidentical hormone for mm-hmm. people that are really lacking that kind of cuddle, that feel good feeling, mm-hmm. and they're seeking for it in other places. Um, do you find mm-hmm. any like dopamine? So a lot of addiction, when I think of like alcoholism or smoking or mm-hmm. sugar addiction, you know, even outside of sexual addiction, they're seeking to this dopamine response, this like reward center of the brain. Mm-hmm. Is that true with sex addiction as well? Yes. Uh, I often will help educate guys about dopamine because it is of course the pleasure principle and there is tolerance in that space Uh, i believe sexual addiction serves three masters more better and different right and because it will never be satiated so therefore the more of course the more dopamine that you release in your brain uh the higher the higher degree of dopamine released in your brain the easier it is to become addicted to it and Sex is an orgasm is the highest possible uh, release of dopamine you can have in your body naturally, right? And so it's pretty easy to get to the space where, hey, I just want to feel good. The problem is uh, when you know when you feel that good uh, over and over and over and over and habitually, compulsively, it becomes not enough. It becomes whether it be not enough with your spouse, or not enough once a day, or not enough once you know it's like or not enough with this then this kind of, you know, it just becomes this insatiable, more, better, different, more, better, different, and creates a lot of issues. Well, and one of the things, you know, I know males and females, our brains are so different. And um, I'm sure there are females brains that work more similar to males, but males, of course, are much more like physically driven, where females are much more emotionally driven. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like from a, a males and females, the way our brains are different, when you think about the sex addiction or mm-hmm. um, affair, like for women, that can be really hard on their self-esteem, on the way mm-hmm. they feel about their body, their trust in their marriage. It seems like a, a very tough thing um, and a tough job that you're in to kind of help couples work oh, yeah. through that. Um do you feel like how many couples do you feel like are successfully able to overcome something like that? Is it something that they are constantly lifelong working on? Is it something that it depends on the person? What does the treatment for something like this look like? So if we're talking about a fair recovery, uh, the very daunting, but true statistic in my experience is the, the recovery process to get to a point where the affair is not something that is consistently a part of your daily life is a three to five year process. And that is a very daunting stat. And a lot of people, of course, want to bail at that point. And what I say is it doesn't mean you're going to be in this kind of distress in a year or two years. It, it just, just means that the amount of trauma and damage has been done to both individuals in this space uh, is going to take a lot of time. So what I normally, the treatment normally is I, I will split them to do their individual work in addition to doing some couples work work towards some, whether we're doing a full disclosure or not, that's a whole different world of uh, establishing a baseline for trust. But the piece you're talking about is really, really important of the, of the uh, in what you said, the female understanding, wait a second, he went and chose another woman with different, uh, a different appearance and different, what, what does that say about me? It's deeply uh, penetrative to their self-esteem and it's very, difficult for them to understand. But what I have to what we as a team have to help them slowly but surely understand is uh, his um, oftentimes, not every time, but 
especially within the context of sexual addiction, his choosing to uh, to have sex with this other person or to have an affair, it has nothing to do with you. It affects you deeply, but it has everything to do with him choosing escape. It's it's not about him choosing someone who's better than you or someone who has or does different things. Than you. It's about him choosing less pain because it's ultimately just like any drug. It's it's a numbing. It's a, it's an escape. Or, uh, and we, we buy into the fact that this counterfeit is going to help us feel uh, this uh, the the anesthesia that we that we so deeply crave when we're in that unhealthy space. So, do you have therapists in your practice that work with the female? I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you keep them both mm-hmm. within your practice. They do one on one, and mm-hmm. they do together uh, counseling. Yeah, yeah. So we have we have couples therapists. Uh, we have two female trauma therapists. Two male trauma therapists as well. So depending on the idiosyncrasies of, of the, what the couple is dealing with, I may, you know, if the couple's you know, in a space where they're not super, super heightened and volatile about it, I can keep them and do some, I think I could do, I believe most of the time I can do some couples work and be, be uh, pretty successful. However, as you can imagine, most people who show up in my office are, Hey, I got an email from your mistress and it's not the most uh, docile of, uh, of uh, 60 minutes. So uh, in that space, I'm going to say, hey, let's split up. Let's work on grounding ourselves. Let's work on the trauma and the immediate spaces, because doing any couples work right now is just going to be carnage. And what, you know, just as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about you in these situations, um, because I'm sure a lot of the conversations are very heated. I'm sure um, it's a Mm -hmm. tough environment to be in as as a therapist. What are some things that you do kind of even outside of your, your job to help you in your marriage or to help you disconnect from what you see on a daily basis. Is there any things that you do from a a caregiver perspective to keep yourself healthy during times like this? Uh, yeah. So I, I have very, uh, real vocational hazards as there are in any profession. Um, but as you're kind of picking up on, uh, one of the big ones here is what's termed as vicarious trauma. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to engage and attach to somebody, uh, who is, you know, letting me on their trauma, there's some residue that's left with me. And it, it only took me about seven years and a couple panic attacks to, uh, to recognize that that effect was very real and that my self-care was extraordinarily important, uh, because, uh, to sit with people in the depths of betrayal and abuse uh, it is severely, um, impactful. And I was pretty arrogant, uh, arrogant slash naive, uh, early on thinking it's not that big a deal. I'd be fine. But then, you know, as, as life grew on, my body was faithful to remind me that, uh, I am not, um, a Superman here. So I had to start engaging, uh, things such as, as I talked about before, early morning silence, it's really difficult for me as a three, but solitude uh, is one of the best things I need to do to uh, ground myself in value and worth uh, and, and and deal with my own trauma as well. I, I think for me, a big piece is yoga. Uh, I've engaged uh, a yoga practice, which allows me to stay grounded and rhythmic with my body and my breath and my soul. That's huge for me. And I rely heavily on my friends in my life. And uh, one of the main reasons I built 
this practice with people as with the people that I did uh, is because you, I, I just am not, I'm under, the, I really believe, I don't think you can do this kind of work and not have someone that you not have people in your office that in between a session, you can walk into their office with tears in your eyes and, and let them into what you just, uh, what you're holding. Right. Uh, because, uh, and not just to be super heavy to walk into their office, uh, with some levity as well, because to isolate as a therapist dealing with this kind of thing is really dangerous. When people, it's people that aren't in your line of work just don't fully understand. So I'm glad that you have, and as you, as your bio said too, this collaborative approach, I think that's just so important. Um, do you meet with clients five days a week or have you shifted your schedule and your hours? Yeah, I've shifted. I, I um, work real hard to never see clients on Friday. And so I, right now I'm, I have a two full days, two half days, Monday through Thursday. Not because that was something I quickly learned. You know, I know mine's not as emotionally heavy necessarily. Sometimes it is, mm-hmm. but sure. just patient care and client care in general, it's, I think sometimes it's, you've got to take care of you as a caregiver too. And five days a week, oh, yeah. full time, it can, it's so much, it is, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you have a client coming up soon because you were just taking a break out of your day to meet with us, which I'm so appreciative of. Um, I wanted mm-hmm. to talk a little bit. We know human connection is just really, it's foundational for our mental health, our physical health. Um, in the pandemic, it can be hard to find that human connection. Uh, are there any strategies or ways that our listeners can kind of improve or optimize that human connection with the way 2021 is starting? Sure. I think, uh, it's, it is, I think of two things, um, connections as you are touching on connections, everything, it's, it's hard to overstate the value of connection. And the two pieces I look at are, uh, vulnerability and empathy as, uh, maintaining and engaging closeness. Uh, one of the, we've got to let people, into our subjective world um, it is really difficult to do, but we have to uh, work against one of the biggest lies. I think that we all tend to feel is uh, that no one really struggles like I do. Um, and no one feels these fears or anxieties like I do. And so we isolate. And if we begin to bring people into our pain and our sadness and our fear, uh, we're going to find that we're less alone and uh, we cannot be alone. Uh, we have to let people into that these spaces. And, and when we do on the opposite side, we have to let, we have to be met with empathy, right? Because empathy is the ability to, to step into someone's uh, emotional experience and feel it yourself. And it says to someone, you know, empathy says that you're not alone. Right? Empathy says that uh, what you're, I see you, that you matter, that and that I'm with you. And if we lose the witness in our life, we become very dangerous people uh, because the experience of uh, suffering alone is uh, unsustainable, and our life is going to show a tremendous mo- amount of. Uh, pathology and neuroses if we lose witness uh, the fundamental experience of uh, of someone sees me but i have to let somebody in if 
it gave them the opportunity to be with me, right? And to empathize with me and to validate my emotional experience and tell me I'm not crazy, to tell me I'm not losing my mind, to tell me I'm not a bad person, right? For feeling and thinking these things. So I think it's those two components when you ask that question, those are the first two things that come up. Is there any tips for both sides, how to work towards becoming more vulnerable and how to work towards becoming more empathetic? So empathy is something that we have to, uh, we have to practice. Uh, we have to work, you know, I, it's, we have to study, we have to practice, we have to fail at it. We have to, you know, I, the way I talk about empathy is empathy, you know, versus sympathy. Sympathy is this, you know, the analogy I use, it would be like uh, when you wait in traffic because there's a car wreck and you, uh, when you get to the car wreck, you look out your window and you say, Ooh, that looks terrible. And then you hit your gas and you go about your life, right? That's sympathy. But whereas empathy is, is the, uh, is getting out of the car, right? Is, is getting out of the car. It's, it's, it's opening the door, stepping into the wreckage, putting your hands, I know this is violent, putting your hands in the blood of the wreckage and saying, I feel this with you. And this is something that you have to practice. This is something you have to, you have to and But however, I think emotional intelligence is, paramount here because if you can't feel for yourself you'll never feel for your spouse or another person you can't you'll just you'll be feigning empathy and so therefore the first and foremost what you have to do is you have to engage your own heart and your own soul and check in with yourself learn you build a vocabulary of feeling uh check in with yourself on a daily basis take five or ten deep breaths and say, I feel this, I feel this, that feels elementary, but that is training your brain to think on an emotional level. And therefore, when your spouse comes home having a bad day, you're going to the access to, to uh, experiencing that shame or the, the, the rejection that they're talking about is going to be much more palpable. Right? And I would think that one of the first things is even just listening, just like being present and listening. Because uh, mm-hmm. I know so often we are kind of half hearing or half listening. So I feel like if people are struggling to feel or be empathetic, just being present and really listening um, could probably go a really long way, I would imagine. Without a doubt. I think, you, you, of course, you have to listen, but you have to hear it, right? You have to go beyond. You have to linger again, that lingering space, like linger in what they're saying. The reason we're afraid, one of the reasons we're afraid of empathy is because we're we intrinsically recognize that it's vulnerable because in order to truly empathize with someone, we have to touch something in ourselves that could be unfinished pain of our own. And we're afraid of that. And uh, so there is a risk inherently in that space, but we, 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 um, I think it's, it's absolutely worth that, that risk for the sake of connection. Well, Kendall, this has been so good. And I want to finish with two last questions because I know you've got to go see your uh, client. So we'll keep them super quick. Mm-hmm. What is one quick mental health myth that you want to bust? Sure. Uh, I'd say if you, the myth is if you married the right person, you shouldn't have to work at it. It just should work. That is really good. I think that keeps people stuck and angry and resentful for a long time. I really like that. And then what is one thing our listeners can start doing today to help improve their relationships? So um, within the context of where we're at 
in society, uh, I think safety and security are things that have been very sparse in our world. And so we must uh, defend and engage a, a relationship in a way that adds safety and security into it. And how I coach clients to do that, it's pretty simple. And I've said no less than 500 times, if I could give you one thing and this, and you never see me again, and this is the thing that you practice, I'd be happy. And it's, uh, we have, you know, I say your relationship is only as safe as your ability to repair them. And real repair adds safety back into the relationship. And the two components of, of act, uh, a healthy repair are specific ownership and accurate empathy. Specific ownership is I said this, I raised my voice, I did this, as opposed to I'm just sorry about what happened last night, right? That's not, that's not specific ownership. We have to speak to exactly what we did, exactly what we didn't do, where we went wrong, and own it. And then, more importantly, engage in a way that feels and can communicate and can engage with the, with the impact that that was like, that, that had on, on the, my spouse or whoever I'm talking to. So specific ownership, accurate empathy. I believe, I really do believe empathy is the greatest gift we can give each other uh, in our, in our, in the, in relationship, human relationships in general, but especially within the context of our marriage, because it goes back to what I talked about before. It answers in a thousand, it answers a thousand words of what we ask each other every day. Do I matter? Empathy says you matter this much to me. And I think that really does create that safety we're longing for. So I, this was so good. And you gave me some really good tips for me to even bring home to my marriage. And I really, I think that's so important that we all at the end of the day, we just want to feel like we are important and that we matter. And I totally agree that empathy is key with all relationships. And um, I'm really appreciative for the work that you do. I know so many people and so many of my patients uh, really need your services and utilize your services. So if any of our listeners want to come see you, where can they find you? Sure. uh, HiddenRiverCounseling.com. Awesome. Find everything you need there. And it's here in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, right? It's in Roswell. It is, yeah, just north of Atlanta. Okay, perfect. And last question, snowboarding. Where do you go? Because there's no snow here in Atlanta. Uh, yeah, there sure isn't. Uh, I you know, I spent eight years in Colorado. That's where I learned to snowboard and grew quite fond of it. So uh, pre-pandemic, I made myself a, uh, uh, a promise that I'd get back at least twice a year. But that has yet to happen uh, in the past 12 months. So. Gosh. That's right. I try to get back to old school, but uh, Winter Park and Breckenridge over there in Colorado, my favorite spots. Well, hopefully we'll get you back on here and um, yeah. hopefully the pandemic will uh, kind of ease and you'll be able to go back snowboarding. Uh, but thank you so much for taking time out of your day. This was great. And uh, we'll have to bring you back on to talk more about the human connection and mental health because we didn't even get to get into EMDR and EFT. So yeah. uh, we could Lots talk for hours. <laughs> well, thank uh, you so I, much, I, I, Kendall. Thanks so much for having me, Christian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, remember, little by little, a little becomes a lot. Even the smallest changes over time can lead to total mind and body transformation. 
I'd love for you to stay connected with at Dr. Kristen Oja and at Stat Wellness on Instagram. And if you have any questions, be sure to reach out. I'd love to hear from you.